Hello, all you bookworms, and welcome to Oh, for the Love of Books, a show that gives you a bit of narration from the books I read or ones you suggest for me to read on my show. I'm your host, Jessica Vickery, and thank you for joining me on this journey. Here's a short recap of what we know about Ghost Detective by Scott William Carter. Myron is a detective who does work for the living and the dead. He's married to a woman named Billy. Karen Thorne, who is a ghost, has come to him for help to find her husband, who may or may not have killed her. Myron has booked two tickets to Hawaii. Will he go or will he stay and help Karen? Karen is the granddaughter of a prominent businessman who owned Thorne Pharmaceuticals, but he has since passed and the company was split between all the descendants. Myron asked to see the picture of Karen's husband, and it turns out it was the person who shot him. Myron was a cop before he was shot. He had a partner, Alicia, who was also his best friend. And he has a love for coffee, which proved to be deadly. Chapter 3 The rain-slick streets of Portland were filled with people. Even though it had been over five years since the shooting, long enough that I should have gotten used to the constant crowds. My first reaction whenever I stepped outside my office building was still to wonder what special event was going on in the city. But, of course, there was no special event. It was just my world. It was a Wednesday evening in the middle of November. Drizzly and cold, still light enough to see, but dark enough that passing cars all had their headlights on. And any other flesh-and-blood person stepping out of my building probably would have spotted a lone person or two walking on foot. Not me. I saw dozens. Three businessmen in suits and bowler hats, a stout woman in a dress that looked like it was off the set of Little House on the Prairie, some teenagers with long hair and bell-bottom jeans smoking pot on the corner, and two police officers in 50s-era uniform walking down the street with a Hispanic man in handcuffs between them. Those were probably ghosts. The easy ones though I still couldn't know for certain without a hand check. The rest of the people, more modern in appearance, could have gone either way. It actually would have been easier if more ghosts stuck with the styles of their day. But many like to keep up with current trends. Dying, I found out, didn't rid people of vanity. In many cases, it only increased it. The air had a wet, chill bite although it didn't appear to be raining. The yellow bubbles of light surrounding the street lamps were streaked with razor-thin lines. I buttoned up my overcoat, watching a bus slosh through the puddles. The inside packed to the hilt. People sitting, people standing. A lot of faces turned my way. I wondered how many of them had a pulse. Not many, probably. I should have cooled my heels at the office until Billy returned. That was our usual routine. But I couldn't this time, not after seeing the eyes of the killer who changed my life. 
The first stop was Mama's Bistro around the corner, Billy's most frequent hangout, and I headed there at a fast clip. When I dodged around a woman pushing a stroller, a couple holding hands just past her gave me a funny look, which was often the way I knew when I'd just walked by a ghost. To a real person, it always looked like I was weaving like a drunk man. For the living, the current population of this little ball of mud we call home is around 7 billion. That's no number to sneeze at, especially when you're at the DMV and it seems as if half of them are in the line ahead of you. But according to the last census performed by the Department of Souls, who are charged with keeping track of such things, over a hundred billion people have lived and died on planet Earth before anyone alive today was even born. For me, they're all still here. The tables at Mama's, both inside and on the covered patio, were occupied. But there was no Billy. I wove through a group of cell phone yakking yuppies decked out in REI. Made the mistake of stepping in a puddle and cursed as I slodged forward with one wet sock. No Billy at the bus depot, one of the places she liked to people watch. No Billy at the newsstand on 26th the one that had burned up in a fire 50 years ago, but was still operated by the same old codger. I rounded the corner and stopped at our favorite neighborhood hot dog stand. The heavy-set man in a red and white sequence jumpsuit handed a little girl with pigtails a corn dog, then flashed me his famous smile. As usual, his full head of black hair was perfectly coffeeared. Most mornings, he worked the street outside my window, but in the evenings he liked to rove around a bit. Hey, Elvis, I said. You seen Billy? No, sir, Elvis said, rolling some of the franks on his grill. The way he flicked the dogs, it was like he was strumming a guitar. It was hard to believe none of it was real. I still didn't quite understand why ghosts use real-world things at all buses, buildings, bridges, when it was obvious they could just create something out of the whole cloth, just as Elvis had done with his hot dog stand. And if they saw it, then I saw it. Just one of those weird little rules that I lived by but couldn't fully explain. You lost a little lady, he said. Oh, she'll turn up eventually. I just need to talk to her. About a case? Something like that. He nodded, not pressing, which was why I liked him. It was everyone's guess whether he was the real deal, the later, heavier Elvis, or just an impersonator. But he was easy to talk to regardless. Well, I hope you find her. Hungry? I looked at the glazed hot dog sizzling on the grill. The scent of grease in the air. Sight, sound, smell. The world was real to me in every way except touch and taste, which were, unfortunately, the ways it mattered most. You know I can't do that, Elvis, as much as I want to. Oh yeah, forgot. You're still playing live, as they say in the biz. But you know you're missing out, pal. That's what I hear. They say you make the best hot dogs that never were.
Thank you very much, he said, flashing me his winning smile. It took a little more wandering, but I finally found Billy perched on a wrought iron bench at the park next to the old Gothic-style church four blocks from my office. She was dressed all in black leather, her favorite style lately, her pale face nearly glowing in the hazy gloom. It was a tiny park with a dilapidated metal play structure, roughly the same color of algae, a basketball court with two backboards but only one rim, and a couple of wooden picnic tables under some leafless pine oak. On the other side of the park, two goth girls leaned against the chain-link fence, eyeing me warily. Their cigarettes burned in the near dark like distant jet engines. Billy didn't look up until I was right in front of her. Even at dusk, her blue eyes were so penetrating that even now, after all these years, my heart did a little jig when she looked right at me. Her hair, which changed more often than the Oregon weather, was short and spiky, black with platinum blonde highlights. She gave me the faintest smile possible, hardly more than a twitch of her cheeks. It wasn't much, but I'd come to appreciate any flicker of happiness from her when she was in one of her moods. Found new haunting grounds? I said. She rolled her eyes. My brand of gallows humor may not have been her cup of tea, but she knew it was the chief way I stayed sane. That was true even before she died. I took a seat next to her and immediately wished I'd wiped off the bench first. I felt the cool dampness seeping into my overcoat. The wide collar of Billy's black leather coat was turned up, partially blocking the henna tattoo she'd put on her neck last week. The way she was sitting, on the edge of the bench, it was as if she had somewhere to go, but it wasn't quite time to leave yet. Across the way, the goth girls were giving me a funny look. Of course they would. To them. I'd just talked to an empty park bench. Did you buy the plane ticket? Billy asked softly. Yep. Cautious that I was being watched, I tried not to move my lips much. A skill I'd picked up in the past few years. One or two. Hmm? You bought a ticket for me, didn't you? I don't remember. Myron, she said in that scolding tone of hers. I like it when you sit next to me on the plane, I said. It's a waste of money. I can sit anywhere, and there's almost always empty seats anyway. You don't need to buy a ticket for a ghost. Instead of answering, I pointed at her leather sandals. They had thick wooden soles. Billy was always trying to be taller. And the web of black leather revealed lots of her creamy skin. Those new? I haven't seen them before. I got them at Macy's, she said with a tone of someone who'd just come from a funeral. They were having a sale. Ah, so that's where you've been. They're nice. Aren't they a little cold for this time of year? Is it cold? I haven't noticed. It was a comment that could have literally been true. But it was probably just surless on her part. We sat in silence. I knew that what I was about to say was not going to make her happy. So I was procrastinating. 
I studied her profile. The elegant cheekbones, the full lips, the ever so slight overbite that she had hated so much and wondered for the hundredth time why someone so exquisite and beautiful and artistic had agreed to marry me. If not for a chance meeting at the Portland Museum of Art nine years ago, both of us there to see the traveling Monet exhibit, her having moved to town a week earlier after fleeing a poor life in rural Maine, I probably would never have even met her. She cleared her throat. What hotel were you? I saw him, I said. I'd meant to settle up to it, start with the girl in the lavender dress, talk about her story, eventually make my way to the picture. But the news was like a bad splinter, worming its way deeper into my skin, my anxiety growing with each passing second. She looked at me, raising one neatly trimmed eyebrow. Who? She said. I started to speak, but my throat had seized up, so I had to swallow before I could try again. The guy who shot me. I saw him. Her eyes flashed like flares at a roadside accident. Her cool detachment gone in an instant. Panic and shock played across her features. What? She said. It was just a picture, not the real thing. Myron, if this is some kind of weird joke. No, no, no joke. I said, and then I went to explain about Karen Thorne's visit to my office. Billy interrupted me several times, pressing for details I didn't have, and pursed her lips skeptically when I finished. Are you sure? She said. I'm telling you it was him. Maybe you just wanted it to be him. You only saw him for a second, after all. Billy, it was him. And anyway, you can see for yourself tomorrow morning. Karen's coming in at eight. Don't tell me you agreed to take her case. I didn't agree to anything yet. I told her I wanted the night to think it over. She shook her head. We talked about this, Myron. We decided, remember? Let bygones be bygones. Move on. Focus on the future. But that's before I knew he was still in Portland. Shh. She flashed me a furious look. Index finger pressed to her lips. I glanced at both goth girls. Both of them standing there with their cigarettes half raised to their lips, gawking at me. A silent film on freeze frame. Don't you remember? Billy said as there was a level of hysteria in her voice I hadn't anticipated. I'd expected her to be unhappy, maybe even angry, but not so panicked about the whole thing. Don't you remember how long it took to get your life together after the shooting? Do you really want to revisit all of that? Won't it just reopen all of those old wounds? But I've got a lead this time, a real one. A lead to what? The truth answers anything. I knew I was yelling again, but I didn't care if anyone heard. Knowing something about him will be better than always wondering. Will it? Yes. Maybe it would just lead to more questions. Maybe, maybe those questions will just throw off your balance. Things are different now. Are they? 
Damn it, Billy, yes. You can promise me? Yes, yes. Because I don't want to wonder where you are at two in the morning. That won't. I don't want to worry that you've drank yourself to death in some bar. I'm telling you. I don't want to have to pull you out of another asylum. You won't have... What? It wasn't something I had expected her to say. The bars, yes, I could understand. There were more than a few times I'd woken up in the alley to the beeping of a garbage truck. The dawn light like needles in my eyes. No idea how I'd gotten on the pile of musty cardboard. Those memories permanently blotted from my brain. I knew how close I'd come to losing it all, to joining Billy on the other side. But I was better now, or at least better enough to get through the day. But the asylum, that was a whole other level of mental instability. A level I've been at only once in my life. It was a low blow. That's what you think? I said. You think I'm that fragile? She looked at me a long time, a shadow among shadows, a ghost among ghosts. There was something there, something she wanted to say. I could feel her holding back. But I had no idea what it was. It had always been that way both before and after death. There were worlds beyond her eyes I'd never visited and never would. She was a book written in Braille and I was a blind man who'd never been taught to read. I think we're all that fragile, Myron, she said. Before I could offer a response, before I could even decipher what she'd meant, she rose and walked away. I reached for her arm, forgetting, as I often did, then let my hand fall limply to my side. I watched her pass out of the bubble of lamplight, disappearing briefly into the darkness afforded by the overhanging oaks, then reappearing on the other side. I saw her footprints on the sidewalk. I saw her trailing shadow. I heard the splash of her boots in the puddles, and I wondered, as I had so many times before, how I could see and hear all these things and yet was never allowed to touch her. At the gate of the park, she turned up the street, going south, headed to her home in Selwood, most likely. It was a long walk, but long walks never seemed to bother her. What about the case? I called after her. I think you've already decided, she replied. But will you help me? Without answering, she passed beyond the stone wall of the church adjoining the park, out of my sight. I hesitated, unsure of whether to jog after her, then decided to let her go for now, to cool off and see that this was something I had to do. There was always later. We had plenty of later. Everyone did. Well, Billy is the dead wife, and personally, she seems to be a very mean-spirited person. And I get the feeling that Myron can't let her go, though. He did buy her a ticket to Hawaii, even though she is a ghost. It doesn't look like he will be making that trip. 
It would really suck not knowing which person was dead or living. All the looks people give you, judging you and thinking you're crazy, would definitely make you feel like you're losing your mind. So let's see what happens next week. Well, that concludes my episode for today. I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen to me talk. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you like my podcast, please subscribe to my show or send me an email to justvicvoice at outlook.com. That's J-E-S-S-V-I-C-V-O-I-C-E at outlook.com with suggestions of books for me to read on the show. Thank you again, and please join me next week on Oh, for the Love of Books. And as always, dream big and keep reading.